Hi, I'm Denise Bailey. And I'm Dr. Monica Parker. And you're listening to My Parents Are Now My Kids, a medical doctor's view and daughter's journey through memory loss and other dementias. As a doctor, I'll help you navigate through the often confusing, confounding, and frequently frustrating technical aspects of dementia. And as a daughter, I'll share with you some things I've experienced caring for and loving my parents who both struggled with these disorders. We want you to have hope and to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we'll tell you that sometimes that light is coming straight at you and you just have to get out of the way. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Monica. Good morning, Dr. Denise. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for asking. Well, I have missed you. Well, I've missed you too. (laughs) But as they say, my cup has overflowed. (laughs) Yes, it has. And I know our listeners have been pining for you as well. So as we all are going through lots of things, you have had an extra cup of things on your plate. So you have, haven't you? I have. And I think that some of that extra has given me a little bit more, a little bit more advice, a little bit more personal experience to better advise people who may be caregivers of persons living with dementia. Tell us about it. Well, um, many of our listeners already know that I'm a full-time caregiver for my mother. Um, I won't say full-time. I I am the primary care provider for my mother, and I do that with a great deal of assistance. But in addition to my mother, I've had responsibility for her sister, who who was 93. And uh, over the summer, her sister became very ill and required hospitalization twice. And she subsequently died. Um, So what kinds of perspectives do I have? And in the midst of all of this, uh, my spouse became very ill and had to be hospitalized. So what kinds of changes did the doctor caregiver go through in a very short three to four week window. Well, it doesn't really matter what your profession is if you are a family caregiver. It doesn't really matter what your socioeconomic status is if you're a family caregiver. Particularly if you are the lead and or only physical person available to respond to the needs of care, medical need, custodial care for not just one person, but three. And you make a very good point because a lot of our listeners out there are still carrying the responsibility of making a living and going to work every day on top of being a caregiver like yourself. And I honestly have to say, and this is why we say that caregiving costs so much for taking care of people with dementia. I did not go to work for a solid four weeks. 
And when I say I did not go to work, I did nothing except sit at the bedside. Wow. I mean, there were one or two emails that I answered that didn't require my immediate attention, but um, that was four weeks out of my life, my work life. So fortunately for me, I have a job that allowed that kind of flexibility. And I had employee supervisors, if you will, who basically said, oh, you're here. I thought your husband was in the hospital. Go on and leave. And I said, I will. But I had my daughter here to be at bedside when I wasn't. And because um, my husband's care needs were such that somebody sat there 24-7, and because it became difficult for my 30-something-year-old daughter to make some of those decisions, and more importantly, to uh, observe the suffering of her parent, whether I wanted to be there or not, I had to be there uh, because it was obviously something that she could not do by herself, even though she was willing. And I, I appreciated that, and I understood that. But all that to say that For those of us that are caregiving for multiple people, in one of our caregiving training classes, we say, assemble your village. I'm going to say to you that if you have not assembled that village, you best get that village in place. Uh, Simply because one person can't be at the bedside for mama and husband and auntie. There's got to be another physical body to be there. So while my husband was in the hospital in intensive care on a ventilator, Mm. my aunt had a massive cerebellar stroke who also required intensive care. But because I, we had agreed when she was capable that we would not resort to heroic measures when I understood the futility of any particular intervention for her, um, we made a decision not to resuscitate her or to employ any um, extra efforts to prolong her life. Why? Because uh, with a massive stroke from which physical and cognitive recovery was nearly impossible, putting, subjecting her to a lot of invasive procedures that would be costly and more importantly, wouldn't improve her her quality of life. Yeah. It wasn't worth it. So from the time she had her stroke to the time she died, it was almost exactly two weeks, which was what the hospitalist informed me. He said, if she eats, she may last a little bit longer. So We made the decision to discharge her from the hospital and let her go back to her residential facility in the care of hospice. And I know for some people, just sitting and watching somebody, I'm going to use the word rest. I'm going to say it a little differently. Watching somebody rest without disturbing them, not trying to feed them, not trying to stick them and start IVs and other things 
was probably more merciful than trying to stick her and trying to do a lot of different things for her. While I wasn't there in the moment of her passing, I felt comfortable that I had done what I needed to do to make sure that she wasn't alone. Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know everything that went on in the facility. But I think that when it gets to the point, regardless of what the illness is, when your loved one is dying from a catastrophic illness, such as a stroke, such as end-stage cancer, kidney disease, and other such things, it's hard to sit there and think that you must do something to make their life longer. But the more merciful thing for you to do is to let them rest Mm. and to let them rest without disturbing them. And I'm using the word rest. You can read between the lines here. But when you're in the intensive care unit, somebody is checking on you every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of light. Um, So if your relative is trying to get some rest, he or she can't sleep because somebody's checking their vital signs. Somebody's turning on a blood pressure machine. Somebody is suctioning um, the windpipe. They're doing something. So if you're laying there next to them, trying to rest, that is not possible. So for those of us who have done this and have to do this, your rest is going to come when you get out of that place. Mm. (laughs) But I'm saying all this to say that as a caregiver, I had two people in the intensive care unit at the same time, and I could only be at one bedside at a time. And you still, and you still had your mother. I still had my mother. So her caregiver, uh, her daytime caregiver was working 12 hour shifts such that uh, my daughter could get there after her job and be there at night to take care of, uh, to be in the house with my mother. So we went from eight hour daily, eight to nine hour daily shifts to 12 hour daily shifts for her at home. She never left the house. Her sister went from the rehab facility to the intensive care unit and back to the rehab facility under the care of hospice. And I had to take it on good faith that the people that I employed to sit at her bedside did what they were supposed to do. And unfortunately, that did not always happen. Uh, So I actually had to fire the home care company that I had hired to sit at my aunt's bedside and to provide comfort for her independent of hospice because they were taking my money and they were not sitting by her bedside and taking care of her. How do I know? Because the nursing staff would call me and tell me that my aunt was left alone. Wow. Note to self, you hire these people, you need to make sure that they're accountable and that they're at bedside doing what they're supposed to do. That's a part of assembling your village and making mm-hmm. sure that you have people in place that will care for your loved one almost as much as you do. To have the compassion, that's hard, isn't it? Well, it's hard when you don't have any immediate family members. You know, if my both of my children lived here, my nieces and nephews lived here, I could deploy one or the other of them to go do that. You know, when I had to take care of my husband, I let my niece go take care of my, my daughter and my niece 
go to my aunt's nursing facility to pick up her laundry to do it every week and make sure that she had clean clothes. But I also paid a sitter to be there. Right. So if I were in an environment and larger families don't have as much of a problem with this, but you have to, and sometimes your village isn't necessarily a blood relative. Maybe it's a church sister or a sorority sister or family that you can call upon who will say prayers for you, who will send you meals. But assemble your village is the take home for this talk this morning. If you are a caregiver for multiple persons with dementia, without dementia, but older persons with chronic medical needs, you have to make sure that there's somebody who can step into your place if you're unable to do so and accept the kind of care that they provide and accept the idea that the way they provide it may not be the way that you provide it, but accept that they're there to do and assist and you can't micromanage all of that. So if you're not going to be at the nursing facility to bring your mother, your father, their Sunday greeting, make sure somebody else is. I don't care who that somebody is. If they're dying and somebody needs to be sitting at bedside, be sure that you sign them up for hospice, but appreciate that those hospice care workers aren't necessarily going to be at her bedside the way you might be, but do it anyway. And again, assemble your village. I've had people from my church, people from my sorority and people from my job send me meals, uh, pray for us, which I've greatly appreciated. And I really don't like drawing people into those sorts of things, but you need to have to, you have to accept the help you get when you get it. Um, When my husband came out of the hospital, we had a sister friend, he doesn't have any brothers or sisters, who was willing to stay here in the house for two weeks to make sure that he got food, that she was here to meet with nurses, to make sure that he had all the assistance he needed to help get in and out of uh, the shower and take care of his personal needs. I additionally paid somebody for that, but for the initial two weeks, such that I could go back to work. I did hire somebody and have somebody available who wasn't necessarily paid to be there. And again, you have to be willing to pay people for things. You may think, okay, Medicare is going to cover this. My insurance is going to cover it. They will not. Right. So you have to make that plan. Assemble your village of surrogates who can step in when you can't. Find out what you must pay for. Uh, And I will say that the home health services and physical therapy services for my husband didn't kick in for a full six to eight weeks after he got out of the hospital. The authorization didn't arrive for his care from the Veterans Administration. For those of you who are veterans, if your husband or your wife is going into the hospital, make sure that they know up front that you're a service-connected veteran so that they can make sure that they get the authorizations in place such that you can get the kind of care that you need taken care of before you leave the hospital, such that there's not a problem. I can honestly say getting home care services, home health, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, a bathing aid, things like that in your home upon discharge isn't something that happens automatically. Right. 
If you don't have a dedicated family member or a home care company to come in that you can say, I need you here at this time, they're not coming. Right. We talked about that. It's not a given. And it's something that you have to partner with your physician and social workers to try to see if you qualify and it applies to your situation. But it's not always a given, and that's very important. But one thing I wanted to touch on, and you, like myself, I don't like to talk about myself, and you probably are the same way, but I'm hearing all that you've been through, and I, I've missed you, our listeners have missed you, you've had to carry the burden of what your husband went through, what your aunt, bless her, went through, and you are still caring for your mother. How do you balance all that and take care of yourself? You try. Um, so you see that I've got my hair cut. <laughs> That's a simple thing. Um, I have to go get my feet done and my nails done. But sometimes you do just have to back away uh, and go somewhere. And last weekend, uh, I did go away on a long drive to visit a friend with no dogs and no husband, no nobody. And honestly, I think the long drive to be in the car by myself at peace was a good thing, you know, and I didn't really do anything except walk around, look at water, get up and eat breakfast on my timetable and not have to fix it for anybody else. That's the only thing that I would say that I've really done. Uh, but uh, I think a mental health break, uh, you know, you can do that a number of different ways. You can do it by physically separating yourself from the environment in which you have to provide and do a lot of different things. But the other way that you can do that is that when you are home, I'm working from home. That's not always an easy thing to do, but you, you have to have diversions. And one of those things is to shut the television off, shut the phone and the email, computer email off. I don't care who sends you the email, you need to just stop it. You know, get that piece for a couple of minutes. And such that you can be a little bit more civil and a little bit more rested and relaxed when you have to get ready to deal with people because the people you're caring for don't necessarily understand that you need to be separated from them for a minute. And during this course of time, my beloved Blue, my dog. Mm -hmm. He's needy too. Right. But the people in my house really couldn't take care of him. So he was sent away for boarding. And that's costly. But if you have a pet while they're comforting, they need, they need your undivided attention too. And that could be a little bit more of a burden. But the point to all of this is for those of you who are multiple caregiving for multiple people, please assemble your village. Who's your surrogate in the event that you can't come there? I'm not even talking about decision-making. I'm talking about day-to-day -day care. Who is your step-in if you cannot be there? That's a big thing to determine. You know, what kinds of resources, support services do you need in your home? And appreciate that some of the support services you need, you're going to have to pay for out of your pocket. Don't get an attitude, just pay it. It needs to be done. But most importantly, Assemble your support system to help you be the surrogate and do the things that you need to have done. 
And as we talk about, we've been talking about it during the pandemic, you know, taking care of yourself and do things to help take care of your mental health. There are situations where, unfortunately, people, in my case, I'm the only one who was able to make medical decisions for both my aunt and for my uh, husband. My mother had it a little bit easier because she has two sons. And when they realized all the things that I needed to do, they both came. <laughs> they that's both came. That's wonderful. Because sometimes family members do not step up. So that was a blessing that you had your brothers who stepped in. And to be fair, those two brothers lived 800 miles away. Wow. They don't live in the same city. They don't live in the same state. Right. So even if you have relatives who live a state or two away, keep appreciate that you have a parent that you share. And that parent needs care, that grandparent needs care, and you get everybody to come help. So for my mother, I have no problems asking my siblings and my nieces and my children to assist me. Well, Dr. Monica, we are happy you are back. I feel for what you have been through and felt it was important for our listeners to know. And thank you so much for sharing. Thank you, Dr. Denise. It's always a pleasure. Please follow us on Twitter, MPMK at MPMK Podcast. And on Facebook, my parents are now my kids. And on Instagram, my parents are now my kids. See you next time.